0: A Johnny Cake that's really a Journey Cake. A dish made with raccoon. And 13 Thanksgivings. This week, we're exploring the cuisine of Native America. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. I'm Brent Peterson. You know, Native American cuisine doesn't get a lot of attention, but it really should. Practically every time we sit down to eat, there's a component of Native American cuisine in our dishes, whether it's corn or beans or squash or even pizza. Think about it. Tomatoes came from the Americas. There wouldn't be any pizza without Native American cuisine. And that's why I was so happy to talk to Dr. Loren Spears. Loren is executive director of the Tomaquag Museum, a museum that helps to preserve Native American culture. Loren and I had a fantastic conversation about Native American culture and cuisine that reaches back millennia. And Loren's grandparents also had a Native American restaurant that was open for decades and was widely praised for its cuisine. So I'm getting awful hungry. Let's eat. Destination Eat Drink. Dr. Loren Spears is executive director of the Tomaquag Museum in Exeter, Rhode Island. Loren is also an educator, activist, author, and indigenous artist. In 2016... Dr. Spears received the Institute of Museum and Library Services National Medal, and in 2017, she won the Thomas Roberts Prize for Creative Achievement in the Humanities. Lorenz Spears, welcome to Destination Eat Drink.
1: Hello, Oscar Lee
0: I mentioned in 2016, you won the Institute of Museum and Library Services National Medal. You were awarded that by Michelle Obama. How exciting was that?
1: That was very exciting. Uh, You know, Tomaquag Museum has a long legacy of work that it's done over the last 60 years. And um, that was the culmination of the work we did maybe in the the later 10 to 15 years um, that was uh, honored through that national medal for the work that we do here at Tomaquag Museum through our Indigenous Empowerment Network, as well as through our public education and programming.
0: Did you get to speak to Michelle Obama at any length and tell us what she was like?
1: One, she was very warm and inviting. Um, We were able to briefly uh, meet and greet her before the actual ceremony itself. And I have to say she really had um, an amazing amount of knowledge about the 10 institutions that won this award across the nation And just really connected with our community members that we also brought that were receiving the impact of our organization. in our case, we brought Christian Hopkins, who at the time had just graduated from college. And he had uh, graduated from Nui School that was here at Tomaquag Museum from 2003 to 2010. Um, He was actually our very first graduate. So he got to be an intern at the museum. He participated in a lot of projects. He was hired as a Tremendously talented uh, traditional artist for flute and for music and dance, um, as well as he had worked in the museum in history during his high school days as a high school intern, learning um, and studying about King Philip's War and creating a diorama exhibit at the time about King Philip's War and the site at Great Swamp. So she was really, really um, super warm, personable. and the biggest thing that I noted is she's there. Moment, like she, her mind wasn't someplace else. She was really giving her full attention to to us and to each group that won that award.
0: Lorraine, you're executive director at the Tomaquag Museum. Tell us about the museum and its mission.
1: To educate the public about Native history, culture, the arts, the environment, with a focus on the Narragansett and Niantic peoples as first peoples of the state what we now call Rhode Island, and of our neighboring tribal communities in Southern New England. Um, But we also talk about national issues that impact Indian country, um, whether that's environmental justice issues or uh, sovereignty issues, uh, food and food sovereignty issues. So we talk about that on a global level. Like yesterday, we had this wonderful talk. It was the descendants of Crazy Horse uh, that wrote a book about his life and legacy and they were here yesterday at the museum and we had this huge crowd of people to learn about, um, about crazy horse and his legacy and the descendants and the continuation of his legacy through them. And, you know, that's a national conversation. Um, So even though we highlight our local tribal communities, we still intersect with um, indigenous communities across the nation. And one of our most Uh, proud programs that we have is called the Indigenous Empowerment Network, where we actually created a network of more than 50 organizations, nonprofits, for-profits, governmental agencies um, that that work with us to empower the indigenous community. And we do that through education, job training, internships, entrepreneurship, uh, you know, small business development um, it's really an amazing uh, amount of work that we do here to help individual indigenous peoples in and around Rhode Island, Connecticut, Massachusetts, um, to, to um, impact their lives in a proactive, positive way with the long-term ultimate goal of taking indigenous peoples out of poverty. Because here in Rhode Island, we're still five times below the white majority and three times below every other ethnicity and economic wealth or lack thereof.
0: You know, when we talk about museums, Lauren, we think of stuff that happened in the past, but you're talking about impacting your community right now, today. That's really interesting.
1: That's correct. And, you know, we feel that it's a living history. We're talking about our past, but it's connected to who we are today. The historical trauma that happened to our ancestors through the colonization process impacts us today. Um, That history, if we understand it, helps guide us today. The cultural knowledge that's been passed down from generation to generation is here for us today. And through a museum like this and the Indigenous Empowerment Network that we have, we impact the Native community by hiring those Native artists for the general public to see their work through exhibitions and art shows and exhibits, but also in demonstrations and, and those kinds of things, but also for the native community. We had um, a tribal elder that does pine, pine needle basket making, which is a coil technique that came in and taught it specifically to the native community, the public gets to be impacted because they get to see these finished products in an exhibit, sometimes just a short pop-up exhibit or in an art show or something to that effect. But for the native community, it's continuing that cultural knowledge and passing it on to the next generations. And we do all our programming intergenerationally so that young people... You know, people in the middle group, I'm going to be 53 in September. And those (laughs) elders can all share their knowledge. Um, We had um, Yolanda Smith, um, who we call Yanni, who is a fantastic quill worker. I mean, just beautiful work on bark. And she does so many things, but she was teaching the native community how to do quill wrapping. By the way, it's extremely hard. <laughs> I, I'm much better at the quill embroidery than I am at quill wrapping. And, and she's just so talented, but it's that perpetuation of those traditional, uh, cultural knowledges through, um, through these art workshops and classes specifically for the native community. Um, and and so we're elevating the artists to artist teachers, um, but we're also sharing that knowledge throughout the community that can go back to each individual family and hopefully continue to pass those skills along.
0: You talked about the artwork, Loren, and I think people don't understand the wide range of artwork that's done by Indigenous people, by the Narragansett, by the Wampanoag people in uh, in southern New England. One of my favorite artists there is uh, Alan Hazard, who works with the uh, wampum. But describe some of the different types of artists that you have in the Indigenous community and some of different kinds of mediums that they work in.
1: So just in our gift shop, which we started through the Indigenous Empowerment Network, was to create more outlets for Native artists in Southern New England. You know, when you go to other parts of the country, you see this cultural tourism that takes place, that gives a visibility to the Indigenous arts of that region. And we were finding that there's just not a lot of outlets. You know, there was powwows and some cultural festivals, but there wasn't that much. So With lots of teams of other people, we've been working together to create, you know, these arts markets like I know Dawn Spears, who um, is a relative of mine. Uh, but she's the, the producer of the Abbey Art Market in Bar Harbor, Maine at the Abbey Museum. And that's going into its third year, I guess, in 2020. We've been also working with different partners like the Rhythm and Roots Festival to give opportunities. So we have a whole arts vendor tent. Um, but the kinds of art forms, I mean, Alan Hazard is a, a master wampum um, artist, but a lot of people don't know he's a master woodworker as well in cedar. Um, And he does cedar pipes and cedar walking sticks um, amongst other things. Um, There's people doing antler work and um, carving and corn husk doll making and basketry and finger weaving, which is a traditional art form here in the traditional ways. You see it as headbands, armbands, leg garters, sashes, belts, things of that nature, handles for baskets or bags. But In um, a modern world, we're seeing it as um, wall hangings and, you know, winter type scarves and other kinds of things like that. Um, We have, you know, tons of beautiful beading artists that do all kinds of beadwork. We have um, potters and carvers and, you know, people who make their own cordage. Um, you know, and then people that are doing contemporary art forms too, uh, photography painting, um, well, we have one artist that does stone sculptures that are, that are framed that are just stunning and people just love them so much. Um, you know, painting on hides and furs, um, using very traditional art forms, there's storytellers, there's dancers, there's performers, as far as, you know, um, culture knowledge from drumming and singing and as well as contemporary singing and music um, that interweaves their indigenous culture into that. So there's just so many art forms. There's um, flute players on uh, October 18th, which is a Friday, we are doing our, our... annual honoring. We've been doing this for over 15 years now, but last year on our 60th anniversary, we decided we were going to kind of tackle into that cultural tourism piece that we wanted to build. And we created a whole cultural showcase along with the honoring. So the honorings are to honor people within the Native community or our allies and that are supporting and impacting the Native community in a positive way. And then on top of that, we were adding this cultural performance piece so this year we have hawk henry's who's this tremendously talented nitmunk floatist um, who plays an Eastern Woodland flute, um, but he also makes the flutes, so you can buy flutes from this artist. We have um, Thea Hopkins, who's an Aquinnah Wampanoag. I call her singer-songwriter. Right now, I believe she's in London performing, um, but she plays the guitar and other musical instruments, and, and her music is a singer-songwriter style with a hint of country and a hint of jazz in it, um, and then we have Anawan Whedon, who is just a traditional artist and culture bearer. Um, and he he played um, King Philip in the PBS series, We Shall Remain, amongst other uh, theatrical performances. But he, is, he created his own piece. It's a storytelling historical piece that's called First Light Flashback that takes you from Wampanoag people today from his community back through history to before European contact. And so that's really powerful that he's going to be doing. And um, who's our fourth performer? My brain just went on a fog. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a fourth one nonetheless. And uh, so we, what we're trying to do is elevate um, and give opportunity to these Native artists, but also elevate cultural tourism in this region.
0: And we'll put a link to the information. That sounds like an amazing event. You also mentioned the Rhythm and Roots Festival, which is a huge music festival in Rhode Island. You guys are involved with that. What is your involvement? And when people go to Rhythm and Roots, what should they look for to uh, see you?
1: This is, I believe, our fifth year partnering with the Rhythm and Roots Festival. And what we did is we have a tribal elder who does the opening blessing to the festival. How do you have a Rhythm and Roots Festival without the indigenous people that are from that land? Right. So the founders of that festival, they they were seeking us out. And so we were very happy to partner with them. And so on top of that, we have Thawne Harris as a traditional storyteller that's in the family tent on both Saturday and Sunday and we have a whole entire i think it's six or eight indigenous artists under one tent as um, a native american arts market within the whole festival so you can come over and talk with native artists you know we have a tomaquag stand which represents the 30 plus artists that are in our gift shop but then there's also these other individual artists that are there um, alan hazard's usually there dawn spears um, we to name just a couple um, But then on top of that, our educators for the museum also do a daily workshop. So any of the families can come over. It's intergenerational. Kids and adults can do this. And we'll do corn husk dolls with you, uh, dream catchers with you, and um, double strand necklaces. It's one workshop a day for about an hour to an hour and a half. So you kind of have to – we post by our tent when the times are. Um, and then it will be posted for the next day. So you just kind of happen by at that you know, block of time and you get to do those workshops. Plus the artists under the artist tent are demonstrating traditional art forms um, throughout the festival as well. Some of them are painting on the spot. Others are weaving. Others are beading. And you get to just kind of be exposed to it and talk to them about their art and their art forms.
0: One thing I wanted to talk to you about, Loren, is the history of the Tomaquag Museum. You mentioned your 60th anniversary was last year, and Princess Red Wing was an incredibly important figure in not only the Narragansett and Wampanoag tribes, but also the founding of the museum. Describe her influence on your community and for you personally.
1: Well, for me personally, I knew her my whole childhood. Um, she passed away in 1987, just the, you know a year or so before I graduated from college. So I grew up literally in this museum. Um, Princess Red Wing was instrumental um, in the founding of the museum. She worked with Eva Butler. The original location of the museum was in Tomaquag Valley, which is how we got our name. People get very confused by that. And they think there's a name of a tribe that's, Tomaquag. That word actually means beavers in the Narragansett language. And Tomaquag Valley was a, a hamlet inside the village of Ashaway, inside the town of Huffington, um in the state of Rhode Island. And um, we were there from 1958 to about 1968. Um, after Eva Butler passed away, the family no longer wanted the museum on that property. And um, they told Red Wing she could have the contents of the museum if she just took it someplace else. And so she went to my grandparents, Eleanor and Ferris Dove, who owned and operated the Dovecrest Indian restaurant, which was a, you know, world-renowned Native American restaurant where people could come and eat traditional foods, succotash, Johnny Cakes, uh, of course, all the seafood, Quahog Chowder, uh, Raccoon Pot Pie, which she was written up in the congressional record for, and, you know, uh, game meats like venison, elk, moose, bear. Um... And so Princess Red Wing uh, worked with my grandparents. They gave her a space for the museum and then they continued to work with it. And so from then on, the Dove family uh, really supported the museum. Um, it's been in three locations in this little village of Arcadia, which is in the town of Exeter. And so we're in our technically fourth home and in the in the midst of doing fifth home development. So <laughs> so stay tuned <laughs> on that one. And, uh, and so, yeah, so Princess Red Wing was an amazing culture bearer. A lot of ceremonies that we still do today are, were founded, if you will, by her, particularly the, the ceremony that we do at the Great Swamp Memorial. She petitioned the state along with some of her contemporaries at the time, objecting to the fact that the state of Rhode Island and the the, the neighboring Southern New England states that were so proud of their victory over the Narragansett at Great Swamp, which of course was really truly a massacre. And they acknowledged that, but at the time they were doing Victorian teas to celebrate the victory mm. on the lawn there at the site at Great Swamp where there were four memorials for the Massachusetts Bay, Plymouth Bay, the Connecticut colony, and the Rhode Island colonies. Because of Princess Red Wing and her contemporaries, they put in an obelisk um, that represented the indigenous people and they created a ceremony in the early 1900s. I want to say it was around the 1920s, off the top of my head, that we do even to this day every um, fourth. Sunday in September. The actual massacre took place in December, I believe it was December 19th, and um, during King Philip's War in 1675, 1676. So she was instrumental in a lot of the ceremonies that we do today. Um, Honoring our history, but she was also a prolific educator, educating the Native community, but also educating the general public about Native history, culture, the arts. She spoke across the world, um, but certainly all across this country. Um, but in many places in Europe as well, sharing Indigenous history and culture. And she was the editor of the Narragansett Dawn, which was this really important news periodical, one of the first of its kind in the nation, written by a Native community, from the in the nineteen thirties and forties, um, that documented our history during a time period where we were really invisible, meaning the Narragansett Indian tribal nation was invisible because the state of Rhode Island had illegally detribalized us in the eighteen eighties. And um it took hundred and one years to rectify that when we got federal recognition in nineteen eighty three. Yeah. So all that time history books said we didn't exist, you know, documentation talked about us not existing any longer, because by their rules and their laws at that time, we didn't exist on paper. And But yet the people did, and things like the Narragansett Dawn showed that we were there and we were a vibrant community my grandparents' restaurant in the, you know, sixties, seventies, and eighties was showing we were there and in a vibrant community. And the work that Princess Redwing was doing, um, being a delegate to the United Nations, speaking all over the world, um to uh being working on a committee. It was um under the undersecretary, there was this committee in the early days of the United Nations that she served on. Matter of fact, we had a researcher, a collegiate, you know, a, a scholar uh, you know, a professor who was researching this and he went to the UN archive. They know about that committee, but didn't have anything about what happened in the committee. And when he came to our archive, we actually found handwritten minutes from her in the princess red wing collection. And I'm sure over time, as we get a better handle of our thousands and thousands, really hundreds of thousands of archival materials, will better be able to serve um, researchers in that way.
0: We're speaking with Loren Spears, executive director of the Tomaquag Museum in Exeter, Rhode Island. Loren, let's talk food. You mentioned the Native American restaurant, the Dove Crest, which was run by your grandparents. And I want to ask you about some of the food that was cooked there. First and foremost, let's talk raccoon pot pie. Um, Describe what it is. And number two, have you ever had it?
1: I will say, yes, I have had it. And it's very delicious. Kind of think of like a chicken pot pie. Um, You know, so it's, you know, the adaptation is the crust of a modern day pie crust. My grandmother was the best pie crust maker in the universe. (laughs) (laughs) No bias there whatsoever. (laughs) <laughs> but she you know owned and operated a restaurant and she made thousands and thousands of pies and and raccoon pot pie is a del- you know it's the delicious meat of the raccoon with the vegetables and the pie crust and the you know the the gravy if you will that you make for in that and it is was always very popular um and it was written up in the congressional record she's served a, a state you know, center at the time, I believe it was, um, raccoon pot pie, and it got uh, written up in the congressional record. The the foods that we had there, I mean, my grandmother won many awards for her Johnny Cakes. Many people in her time and place said she made the best Johnny Cakes in the whole world. And Johnny Cakes were originally known as a journey cake. um, And it's made with uh, flint corn, you know, Narragansett or white flint corn, and that's ground with a mortar and a pestle, and then it's scalded with boiling water. Um, and in the modern world, then put on a griddle, if you will, in the old days, some bare fat and on a hot stone, you would make it into a cake. And the idea of this journey cake is you could take the cake with you on a journey in your pouch. You add the pemmican, which is What you would call dried meat. Think of a beef jerky, if you will, but instead it's venison jerky or it's bear jerky or moose jerky, and it's pounded with seeds and nuts, often sunflower seeds, but it could be any kind of seed or nut, and then dried cranberries or dried grapes or any other kind of dried berry. But cranberries were the most popular from my perspective because they had these, it had a really strong, potent dose of vitamin C all through the winter. It maintained its potency and so you took that pemmican that had the vitamin c some more protein some of those nuts and then you take the journey cake which gives you all that carbohydrate and while you're out on a hunting or you're out on a scouting or you're running as a runner from village to village to pass a message um, or you're going to trade with other communities when you're doing that traveling either on foot or via canoe, um, you had your meal meals ready to eat, you know, MRE. <laughs> <laughs> the original MRE. Yeah. So um, in our, in Dovecrest, you know, my grandmother, she was feeding her family these traditional foods in the very early days of opening this restaurant, she came from a long line. Her grandfather owned a restaurant up on Pub, uh, the corner of Public Street and Eddy Street in Providence. Um, and her father was this amazing chef. As a matter of fact, my whole life, my great grandfather would come down to Dubcrest on the weekends and he would make the roasts or whatever it was for the Sunday like special game meats along with my grandmother and they would serve these things, um, at the restaurant and they would have traditional clam bakes, um, in the summertime, you know, this is dug in the ground with the hot stones and the seaweed and the layering with, you know, Ashant the lobster and the clams and the crabs and, you know, all the seafood that you can put in there. It's so delicious. And, um, you know, I always fight back at the museum because Rhode Island's forever appropriating indigenous foods and they call them Rhode Island, you know, clam bakes today and they call right. it Rhode Island clam chowder today when it's the indigenous clear broth clam chowder. Um, so I push back and they should be calling it Narragansett or at least indigenous right. clam bakes. You know, our neighbors, the Wampanoag and other other eastern woodland coastal tribal communities also did similar type foodways. And because the resources were similar, Um, not exactly the same, but similar.
0: Probably sharing between the tribes as well.
1: Of course. And we had relationships with those tribes and were allies together in many cases. And we had some enemies, but we had many more allies that were working together. And the, foods that we were traditionally eating were foods that my grandmother was serving in this restaurant. Um, she served contemporary foods too. Um, but she served, you know, um, succotash was a, a regular daily vegetable option and the vegetables were served family style, just the way our community serves foods. Um, there were green beans, which of course is, a, we even have a green bean Thanksgiving cause it was the first harvest of our historical crops and that was always done with a clam bake, but nonetheless. And then there was, of course, corn chowder and clam chowder and fish chowder, um, which could be a variety of types of fish. It could be salmon. It could be other kinds of fish in the fish chowders. And there was, you know, all the game foods, rabbit and raccoon and um, and venison, elk, moose, bear, um, you name it, and every bit of seafood, scallops and clams and oysters and all of those kinds of things. She made an oyster pot pie, too, was another common pot pie um, that was very, very, very popular. And so, you know, the things that you think of as the modern American Thanksgiving, those were all there. But my grandmother was like an amazing woman. How she managed to orchestrate Thanksgiving when people came to Dubcrest, I will never know. And I cook a huge Thanksgiving feast, but she did it in three waves of customers coming and each person could order their own weighted turkey. So if you wanted to eat at Dovecrest and you wanted a 15 pound turkey, you'd have your 15 pound turkey and all the fixings that, that went with it and the desserts and the whole nine. And then you could take your leftover turkey and stuffing home with you. Wow. And I, I like, don't even know how she did that because it was just like three seatings. It was like, uh, like an 11 o'clock, a one o'clock and a three o'clock. And then the whole entire restaurant and the whole what we called the bar, the lounge, if you will, that was not open to the general public that day and was also transformed with all the tables and chairs for people to have the full on dinner. And and it was amazing, you know, and it had all the modern American, you know, squashes and, and sweet potatoes and you know, corn and all of those things, plus all the additional uh, indigenous foods. Because on our Thanksgivings, we don't just have the turkey as a meat. We have venison, elk, we have, you know, seafood, oysters and scallops and all of those late fall seafood harvests um, we have in Thanksgiving. Of course, by the way, the modern American Thanksgiving is completely at the wrong time of the year. The harvest Thanksgiving for us, we still in our, in our Narragansett community um, have the harvest Thanksgiving it's at the very beginning of October because you just harvest your garden. That's when you do Thanksgiving. Um, The modern American Thanksgiving is kind of more closely around the hunter's moon and Thanksgiving. Uh, So sort of for that fall hunting of, you know, what would be, you know, moose and, deer and bear you know before the winter
0: right and you know you're not harvesting corn at the end of november that's for sure at least in rhode island you're not
1: our corn our corn planting i mean our corn a green corn harvest thanksgiving is our actual powwow today which is known as the August meeting powwow but you'll also hear the MC talk about it as our green corn harvest which means the early corn harvest um and that's the 10th and 11th of, of August so we have 13 traditional thanksgiving's once one for each new moon of the year and so the moon is the time period of the harvest and the thanksgiving is the celebration and the ceremony of the harvest
0: I I want to talk about powwows in just a sec, but it it struck me one thing that you said, Loren, which is talking about the journey cakes and the fruit that goes with it. And it occurs to me that this is an absolute ingenious way to sustain oneself.
1: It's so true. And, you know, a lot of people like to imply or infer that indigenous peoples are not we're not scientific. We might not have been quantifying it on a piece of paper, but we were very scientific. And we've had engineers here at the museum that looked at the birch bark macaque and actually did the mathematical formulas that it takes to create that macaque, which was used, it's a birch bark container that was often used to capture the sap that comes from the maple tree, which we call wakoni Neep or sweet water. That then would be boiled down to um, create maple syrup or maple sugar or maple can be depending on how long you do that process and with the type of home that we have the we too which is the dome-shaped home which sometimes people hear termed wigwam um, also the nushkito or longhouse those are very engineered. There's very deep engineering mathematical equations that can be attributed to the work that our ancestors did to build these homes, to make them sustainable during the winter months and combat the heavy snows that we have here and keep us warm. I, I always am like flabbergasted at how people would infer that we didn't have that scientific knowledge. We didn't live on this land for tens of thousands of years and survive, you know, rough Southern New England winters, um, not without using, uh, scientific knowledge, but we often call that T E K traditional ecological knowledge. And that's how to use the resources of the land in the most effective ecological and balanced way that serves your families and communities, um, to have a vibrant life. Um, People imply that we weren't well fed. We were very well fed. This ecosystem has everything here. We have the forests, we have the fields, we have the salt waters, the ponds and the ocean and the bay. We have the fresh waters, lakes, rivers and ponds. I mean, we just have a myriad of resources all year long. And yes, the winter months, they're a little bit harder to come by, but we did technologies. We dried fish for the winters. We dried mushrooms, we dried berries, we dried other kinds of um, crops and you know like the dried beans the the flint corn you know all of those things that could be maintained over the long winters which we considered gifts from the creator and we have stories about how the corn came to be here and help us sustain us during those you know those long winter months when the gathering was less available and, and we utilized everything you know there are roots that you can eat there's tubers there's um, you know Uh, plant life and uh, nuts and berries and mushrooms and, uh, you know, meats and foods, you know, just a myriad of resources in this landscape.
0: You know, you talk about engineering, there's also agricultural engineering. And one of the most ingenious inventions of the uh, Native peoples was what's called the Three Sisters. I, I learned about this when I had my small little hobby farm. But This has been going on for millennia amongst the native people. Describe the three sisters and why it's so important.
1: Sure. So, the corn, the bean, and the squash are known as the three sisters because they have a symbiotic relationship. The corn grows first um, and it becomes the stalk um, that is the strength. And then the bean grows around the corn, which gives it its stake, if you will, to grow up. But the Bean also gives nitrogen or nutrients back to the soil. And the squash grows around the mound that the bean and the corn is in, creating, if you will, kind of like a mulch or a shade. So that the moisture and the water stays in the soil under the, you know, under the the mound, you know, for the mound, for the corn and the bean, as well as for the squash. And so they work together to create this relationship that helps each one of them grow to its um, best. And the corn, I mean, and we had myriads of kinds of squash and myriads of kinds of beans. There was the fresh green bean kind of bean, but then there was also those hard beans that you would keep for the winter months that gave you so much nutrients, proteins and nutrients. And then again, with the corn and the ground meal, we would, you know, grind the corn into a journey cake, but you would also have yolk which is kind of like the ground corn just parched with water, you can kind of think of it like like um, grits or. Um cream of wheat or oatmeal, and you would add other things to that. But you also could put, you know, the beans in soups and stews. You can put the corn in other kinds of things. And the berries, um, cranberries in particular, were often put in soups and stews. We still put cranberries in soups and stews. It gives it a really nice flavor. Um, And it's not obvious. It kind of like dissolves into it, but it gives this um, sweet and tangy kind of undertone Um, which is really nice in like a venison stew or in a beef stew for that matter, you know, any kind of stew like that, it gives it a really nice flavor. And so it's really important. And we had these diversities of food to keep us healthy.
0: You know, the other thing that I loved about the Three Sisters for me personally when I had my hobby farm was the squash vines would uh, reach out all over the gardening bed and not only provide shade and keep in the moisture, but also it tamped down the weeds, which was one of my favorite features because it meant less work having to weed when you uh, did the Three Sisters.
1: And, And on top of that, in our gardens, we also had melons. And then there were, you know, sometimes there were onions, there were other other crops in our traditional gardens, but then what wasn't grown right in our garden, you were out collecting, you know whether that was a clover or mint or wild onions or um, other kinds of roots and tubers, Uh, like there's something called an Indian potato, which is kind of has a texture of a modern day potato, but it was a tuber that we harvested. And so there's all these foods that were here that we just had a myriad of things, which is why I think when early explorers, they're often quoted as talking about how tall we were as a people um, compared to Europeans at the time that were coming here, those, you know, kind of like in Barrazzano's day, um, where he's talking about how he's describing how we look and how, how he felt that that we were really tall. And as a community, we tend to be on the taller side still today. And I think that that has to do with that diversity of foods. I mean, there really was a large diversity uh, and it still is a large diversity of foods. What cracks me up? We take people on nature hikes here. Well, I should call it a walk because it's not like a forced march or anything. But so we take them on these hikes and adults so you can book a tour here to take a tour of the museum and then take an hour Hike, and we take you through the landscape of our property and talk about, you know, the black walnut tree and eating the walnuts and using the ink that comes from it for dyeing baskets or clothing. We talk about the tulip poplar and how that bark would be used for our traditional homes and how the actual trunk of the tree could be carved down into a dugout canoe. And we, you know, point out the mullein and how you can make medicinal teas with that, but also how you can line your moccasins with the mullein, which also helped to stimulate. Your feet, but also gave you cushion in your moccasins and you know, and so on. But what cracks me up is I'm shocked by the number of people when we've done these same tours offsite at other entities where there's rose hips by the salt waters and people don't eat them. I'm like, what? I'm like what do you mean you don't eat them like my kids and our families were like you wouldn't even think to walk by those and not eat them and then of course collect some you can make teas you can make jellies and jams you can put them in other foods and make like a sauce with them like kind of like applesauce but Rose hip sauce
0: that <laughs> they'll pay, uh, you know, twenty dollars for rose hips in the gourmet grocery store.
1: Yeah. And I'm like, they just walk on by. They're like, what, you eat those? I'm like, yes, we eat those. And, and like a myriad of other things that people just blaze on by. And we're always so surprised. Um, by that. And, you know, I'm working with a group. They're doing uh Providence. It's like the year of Providence. It's an anniversary. I can't quite remember the year now, but nonetheless, they're doing um, a, a program on looking at the the environmental uh, environment. I was kind of redundant, but in the city, like, so like planting in the urban. So about urban gardening, but also about the plants that are wild that are in the urban landscape that people could be harvesting if they so chose. And, you know, it was like... I was in actually in Nevada in in Reno, which is an urban area, and um, my son and his partner, Michaela, she's from there. She's Paiute, Shoshone, and Washoe um, from that area. But we were going to a museum to see a Native show there that some of her family was in, and um, we were we were you know shocked by the poverty that was there and the number of homeless people that were sort of roaming around the city, and. The thing that shocked us the most is there was this amazing plum tree just virtually weeping over with plums. And my son's like, why are these people not eating these? <laughs> right. we, we thought we'd demonstrate. So we all took some plums and started munching on them, hoping that other people would take the hint and eat the plums. Um, you know, sometimes if you're not exposed to it, you don't even know it's edible. And, um, you know, certainly even as indigenous people today, there are things that we're not eating that our ancestors ate, like, um, the yellow, uh, Lily, you can eat the roots of. Well, I'm not spending a lot of time diving into the pond to eat the yellow lily roots, but <laughs> our ancestors, it was a necessity. Sure. You know, the, the cattails. You know, they used the fronds to make mats for their homes, but they also ate the 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 shoots, the young shoots of the cattail, and and lined baby diapers with the brown pod at the top. So, you know. Yeah, we're not necessarily doing that today, but it's good to have that knowledge and and to know that you could. It's it's one of those things that if something happened and you had to think about use of the land, it's nice to have that knowledge of what you could do. And some of those things people still do, um do harvest and do eat. I mean, fiddlehead greens, for example. Um there are recipes out there and I'm sure there are tribal elders that are eating the the milk the cattail uh, fronds. I've got it on my bucket list of things just to harvest just to try it and see what it tastes like because I have not had that particular thing. But, you know, there's different people in different communities that are still eating those things and, and still using a lot of traditional medicinal knowledge. You know, I have a cursory understanding and there's things like um, sweet fern that I'll use to get rid of poison oak and poison sumac and things like that. But if I really want someone who has knowledge, I go to the elders. My father-in-law is extremely knowledge about knowledgeable about medicinal uh, herbs. And so if we have a problem, we go to him and he'll create the, the tincture or, or tea so that you know that it's done in the proper uh, amount so that you don't hurt yourself.
0: One more food uh, we should talk about is strawberries. Talk about the importance of strawberries to the Narragansetts.
1: Sure. Well, every everything that's edible is certainly an important thing. But the strawberry has a, a significance. One, because it's the first berry of the season. Two, the word minyash," which means strawberry in English, but it literally translates as heart berry. And we consider it a gift of friendship. When you have a quarrel with someone... And you sort of want to apologize and move forward, you bring them strawberries. And the strawberries are there to um, share together. And who, unless, you, unless you're allergic to them, pretty much no one else can't eat a strawberry and have like a smile on your face with the sweet taste of it, you're supposed to forgive and forget and move on from that issue that you had. And so my aunt, Paula Dove Jennings, she actually wrote the book, The Strawberry Thanksgiving, that tells the story of a modern day family going to a strawberry Thanksgiving. And in the center of it is an insert that kind of tells the historical oral history story that's been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And each year here at Tomaquag Museum, we do a public version of Strawberry Thanksgiving, of Cranberry Thanksgiving, of Nokomo. Right now, we're doing three, but in our history, we've also done um, Maple Sugar Thanksgiving, Corn Planting Moon and Thanksgiving, um, and Green Bean Thanksgiving um, as additional Thanksgivings. And probably when we get to our next version of our our museum, will probably reinstitute those. Some of those that are in the kind of colder weather are a little bit difficult to do here. And green bean Thanksgiving is only fantastic if you also can do a clam bake. <laughs> 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 and that's how we historically did it in partnership with Dovecrest. We used to have the green bean Thanksgiving for Tomaquag Museum, for the public and for the Native community and have the clam bake. So when we can do that, that will be reinstituted.
0: Lauren, tell me about the Narragansett Food Sovereignty Initiative, because I wasn't familiar with this before I started researching for this interview. Could you talk about that a little bit?
1: Sure. Um, My brother-in-law, Cassius Spears, and his wife Dawn, they founded the Narragansett Food Sovereignty Initiative. Um, And I'm thinking it's like four or five years old now. The first couple years, um, so this was land that was given back to the tribe from the Crandall family in Westerly. They had owned this property from the colonial time period to today and realized that an injustice had been served and wanted to give the land back to the tribe. And so when the elder Crandall passed the the, the property completely reverted to the tribe and Cassius um, negotiated with the tribal community to have the food sovereignty initiative there. And on that, they did a lot of um, soil restoration work. Um, they work with EPA and NRCS uh, Conservation Service. I don't know the, what the whole acronym stands for, um, but environment, you know, federal environmental agencies that would help um, them do things for restoring the soil, which had been heavily damaged over the years. And they created the food sovereignty. Uh, Initiative where they grow. The goal is to grow natural materials to augment in the indigenous communities diet to have sort of farm to table foods um, to increase our health and well-being and through that of course is a lot of traditional foods so last year um, was the first year that we grew as a communal group not individual families at their individual homes but as a communal group the whole entire tribal community the Nar- the historic heirloom narragansett flint corn and so it was planted tended and harvested by the Narragansett community. Um, And we feature a a little segment of that in our uh, indigenous foodways exhibit that also spotlights uh, and so along with that, they grow other crops, uh, tomatoes and sunflowers and peppers and potatoes and other kinds of things with the idea of increasing um, the health and wellness of the community. And along with that, they do programming there, um, again, reinforcing the idea that we need to heal ourselves from the historical trauma through gaining Um, and deepening our cultural knowledge, sharing that knowledge with others, but also um, having opportunity, you know, it's the 21st century, people, you know, go to school, go to work, do the day job, go to sports, you know, there's all these things that kind of get in the way of of having opportunity to learn how to um, weave or bead or, um, you know, plant and harvest Um, make basketry and things like that. So everyone participated in that whole entire process Um, and they got to take home that Flint corn. And this year they were brought it back to plant, um, you know, what they didn't use at home as ground corn. They brought back to help plant again. So it's a really remarkable initiative um, that will hopefully continue to grow and prosper over the years and continue to share those cultural knowledge With each generation, because as our community always does, this was done intergenerational. So there were little tiny tots, children, teens, uh, adults, and elders all together working, and there's stories being told about our history of agriculture and other cultural knowledge. And it's really quite wonderful the work that they have done. And if you want to, if the listeners want to learn more too, um, we partnered with. the road tour. um, It's road like Rhode Island, R-H-O-D-E tour.org. And we have the first people's tour. And so if they go to roadtour.org, it was um, created by the Rhode Island Council on the Humanities. And that road tour, we have 10 tours that tell about different portions of our history. As a museum, as you mentioned, we go all the way to the present day. So there's tour in our in our tour, there's ten sub tours, and it starts with My myantinomi canonicus. Um, there's a nintigrit tour. There's a quiet tour, and then it just keeps going forward to Princess Redwing and the Dove family and the Food Sovereignty Initiative, um, and it t- touches on enslavement and indenture and erasure and. Cultural continuation and all of the things that we just talked about here, um, the work that we do at this museum to continue our culture forward. It talked about language and all of those things so they can learn about it, but they can also virtually go to different places in Rhode Island that connect to each of those tours. And when they visit Rhode Island, they can come here and actually tangibly go to the site of Great Swamp or, you um, or, to the monument down in Watch Hill that is uh, celebrating Ninigret's life and uh, to Fort Ninigret, just to give an example.
0: I'm glad you brought up all these ways that visitors can experience native culture in Rhode Island. Um, What about some of the other ways before we let you go, Loren, what about some of the other ways to experience native culture? I know me, for example, I've gone to the August powwow before and it's really an incredible—it's not only a very uh, interactive learning experience, but it's also a ton of fun to go to one of these powwows. Could you talk about that and maybe some of the other ways people can experience the culture in Rhode Island?
1: So there are several different powwows that happen in Rhode Island. The Rhode Island Indian Council did one, does one in July, I think it—I'm I'm not quite sure if it was last week or if it's this weekend, to be honest. But, you know, so they do one— um, there's the Narragansett August Meeting Powell, which is the 10th and 11th this year. Um, you can go just over the border into Connecticut and go to the Mohegan the next weekend and then go to the Pequot One the following weekend in Connecticut, which is just about a half hour away. Um, you can... Um, You know, obviously see us at Rhythm and Roots Festival. You can go to art shows. We partner with the Rhode Island State Council on the Arts to do um, Indigenous art shows, the the Work uh, Center for the Arts, the Hera Gallery. We partnered last year with the University of Rhode Island. So there's all kinds of different Native American art shows. Of course, come to Tomaquag Museum and you can do all kinds of things. We have book talks. We have performances. We have the Thanksgivings. We do, you know, tours on Wednesdays from 10 to 5. Saturdays 10 to 2. We book programs the rest of the week because we're here six days a week. Um, Our facility is not giant, hence the new facility development, but it allows us to uh, do um, groups, school groups, camp groups, elder tours, church groups. We do all kinds of folks. We do um, teacher trainings. We had a whole group from UMass Amherst here on Wednesday doing a Teachers Institute. Um, We also have um, a myriad of types of adult programming. And you can check all that out on our website at tomahawkmuseum.org. You can look at our blog there that has lots of great information, our archived podcasts. you can check us out on social media. You know, we have Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, uh, Pinterest, you name it. Um, don't promise to be up on all of those all the time because we seem to up moments on one and down moments on another with a small staff, but, uh, you can do all of those things also, um, in Rhode Island, um, There's just, you know, you'd be surprised how many different events that we're at. Um, Tomaquag does lots of offsite programming in partnership with organizations. So we were at Narrow River. We did a kayak tour with them. We're working with uh, the folks at Smith's Castle in the fall to do a symposium on Roger Williams. We partnered with the Secretary of State's office and Roger Williams National Memorial through funding through the John and Letitia Carter Fund at the Rhode Island Foundation to do education for the state students at the state house on you know first peoples on roger williams on the royal charter on what the secretary of state's office can share through their archives and such We partnered with the archive there on an exhibit on waterways in Rhode Island and loaned our fishing weir and a small model birch bark canoe and stone uh, fishing tools. Um, So we do a lot of that kind of work. We've partnered with the Providence Public Library on exhibits. Um, That one, I believe, was on food a couple of years ago. So there's lots that we do. So there's lots of ways that you can intersect with the Native community. And at the tribe itself, you can go to the August Meeting Powell. You can go to the harvest. Thanksgiving, because those are open to the public. You can go to the Great Swamp Memorial Ceremony um, in September. Um, you can reach out and call them up and say, hey, you know, I'm curious. Um, sometimes they have staff that can get to you and sometimes they don't. But um, that's that's an opportunity that happens on occasion. And just get to know some of the Indigenous people, too. Um, I think sometimes people just don't know who we are and what we do, except for what is sort of the fictitious a stereotypical view of what is an indigenous person. And they forget that we live in the 21st century as well. And that we're not always in our traditional clothing and we're not doing everything our ancestors did 400 years ago, just as they are not doing what their ancestors of 400 years ago did. (laughs) And so, so we call a lot of people that do those kinds of things, artists or culture bearers, um, You know, but people do various amounts of those things, Um, and and you know they they know their culture and their community, and they're living it. They're living their culture.
0: Loren Spears, it's just been a treat to talk to you, and I thank you so much for being on Destination Eat Drink, but also for all the important work that you do on behalf of your community and for the First Peoples community. Thanks for being on the show, and. We look forward to seeing you down the road.
1: Nubion, you're welcome.
0: What a great conversation with Lorenz Spears. I'm not sure I'm ready to try raccoon pie, but I'm certainly up for adopting the idea of 13. 13- thanksgivings. Thanks to Dr. Loren Spears for being a part of the podcast. And if you enjoyed the podcast, rate and review us on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe. You can subscribe at iTunes, of course, at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, or at radiomisfits.com. There's also a link to all our episodes at destinationeatdrink.com. Join us next week when we hit another great foodie hotspot. I'm Brent Peterson, and I will see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.